this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. Well, I think you're in for a special treat today. David Hauser built, along with his partner CMAC, a company called Grasshopper. You may have seen some of their advertising. They did telephony services, if you want to use the broad definition. He sold the company for $165 million of cash and $8.6 million of stock. He and his partner were the majority shareholders, along with a management team. They owned 100% of the company. They never went for venture funding. And it just is truly an incredible story. One of the things I want you to listen for in particular was his positive cash flow cycle. I know this sounds kind of boring, but it, I think, was the secret sauce to get him to where he was so that he didn't have to give up equity. So many technology companies, of course, have to sell multiple rounds of equity in order to fund the kind of growth that David enjoyed. He, in fact, didn't have to sell any equity because they used a positive cash flow cycle. So listen for how he did that. I think there's some great lessons there. Uh, $30 million of revenue sold for $165 million of cash, more than, if I'm doing the math right, almost six times top line revenue. To tell you the whole story, here's David Hauser. David Hauser, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John, thanks for having me. You're like a hero in the world of entrepreneurship. Two companies, Grasshopper and Chargeify. I want to ask you about both, but let's start with Grasshopper. So what does this company do for folks sure. who don't know? Yeah, so it's kind of funny when people ask me that because I spent so much time at Grasshopper, more than 12 years, um, and I never really uh, was good at explaining what it did because I wasn't that kind of salesperson, right? Um, but uh, the simplest answer is a virtual phone system for entrepreneurs, press one for sales, two for support, on-hold music, transferring, all that just totally virtual, right? So no physical lines had to be anywhere. You could use your cell phone, your uh, landline when we started, uh, or voice over IP over time. Um, and we just didn't care. Um, core customer, one to 10 companies, so micro SMB. Got it. And how did you sell to those guys? Yeah, so we did a lot of what, what I would say is just kind of traditional um, B2C marketing, right? So even though we we're uh, SMB and selling to B2B, all of our marketing was very much B2C. So print, radio, um, direct response online, so uh, AdWords and things like that. Um, and then a ton of branding, right? So unlike uh, other typical B2, uh, B2B plays, uh, we did a lot of branding. So at least 10% of our marketing budget was dedicated to pure branding spend, which was not direct response. And how, what was the billing model? How did you charge customers? Yeah, so we build people just like kind of like a cell phone, right? So based on kind of consumption or minutes, um, we you would prepay for your plan and then postpay for your minutes if you went over it. Um, but it kind of came in packages. And then we had an unlimited plan and some mix and match stuff. 
Um, what's really interesting is when we started, um, we were able to charge people like $10 to access the system on the web, right? I mean, we're talking 14 years ago um, now. Um, and, you know, that we, we charge $10 a month just to access it online. Obviously, that went away over time, but that was a great revenue stream for a while. I would think so. I would think so. Um, and, and you said the we. I understand you had a partner in this business. Tell me about him. Yeah, so CMAC, my business partner, we started together. Um, we were both at Babson College. Uh, he was a year ahead of me. We, we actually didn't really know each other very well. Mutual friends introduced us. Did you study uh, entrepreneurship at Babson? Yeah, I did. Can ba uh, great great school. Because Babson is known as you know the place to learn entrepreneurship. And I wonder, do you, do you think entrepreneurship can be taught? I, I don't think it can be taught, but I think Babson does a great job of providing a lot of the underlying um, uh, skills that you need, right? So if it's accounting, marketing, operations, uh, human resources, you know, interpersonal skills, like all of those things can be taught and learned, right? So understanding how to read a balance sheet and income statement properly and format it and do it, right? Like that's a skill you can learn. Um, and I think any good entrepreneur needs to do that. But the actual passion to be an entrepreneur, I don't think you can be taught. Um, so I would say Babson is more about teaching business skills than teaching entrepreneurship, but they've branded themselves very well in the entrepreneurship space. And that's why I went there. Got it. Okay. So you build up Grasshopper. It, it, you mentioned it was, did I write that down to say 14 years in uh, yeah, so startup? It took, a, it took us 12 years and we sold it two years ago. So it's been around for now 14 years. Um, but we were at it for 12 solid years of hard work before uh, it was quote unquote successful. <laughs> Got it. Okay. And how successful was it? Like how big a company was it when you decided it was time to sell? Yeah. So when we, when we decided to sell, we were doing about 30 million a year in revenue um, and, you know, kind of increasing. So run rate was more than that, but that was actual revenue. Um, and uh, the other thing we were really proud of is it was a relatively small team. So when we sold, um, we were under 40 people. Um, and, you know, for a company that size, uh, I think we were very efficient. Uh, and it took a lot. You could say that again. <laughs> That's almost a million dollars of revenue per employee. Yeah. And if you add back in some of our call center staff, because we staffed it externally, you know, we're still at about um, $650,000 to $700,000 per employee uh, on a revenue basis. Wow. How did you, how, like, how did you do that? What, what, what's, what's the underlying economics that allowed you to do that so efficiently? Yeah, I, I wish I had a magic solution, but it's kind of just really uh, simple stuff. Um, put, putting goals in place, having uh, quarterly goals that roll down to monthly goals that roll down to weekly goals, um, getting that rhythm in place, um, getting the team on board with that, and then really pushing down to the team. So decisions are, are bottom up instead of top down um, and allowing people to take ownership, right? So rather than directing and saying, do A, B, and C for me, uh, it was much more about accomplish X, right? And how do we get there together? Um, so giving ownership to the team, I think did a lot. The structure did a lot. Um, and you know, I, there's a lot of books about this and people talk about them all the time, um, scaling up, um, or traction, kind of very similar. Like these are very old business practices that are being reapplied. Uh, and when we put them into our business, it had a great effect. And I think the results showed for themselves. How profitable was it on 30 million of revenue? Yeah, so we were really profitable. We never shared the, the profit numbers. Um, but uh, I mean, it, it was a highly profitable business with gross margins over 80%, right? So um, even if you factor in staff and other things, you know, our net margins were, were really quite high. Um, but 
uh, quite honestly, we never had a lot of cash. We reinvested everything back into the business from day one all the way up until selling. So the year that we sold, um, we invested $12 million in radio advertising, right? So um, that, that, that type of expense, even if you're doing $30 million in revenue, um, definitely uh, is kind of makes you cash poor. Uh, as you have to invest early for some of those payoffs. How come you didn't have any competitors? I mean, you, you must have had competitors, but it seems like highly profitable, relatively yeah. big company. Um, you know, you weren't in some sleepy niche doing 500 grand in revenue. You, you were doing $30 million of revenue. You must have had competitors, but it seems like you were able to sustain these massive margins. Yeah, we definitely had competitors, right? And uh, one of them was publicly traded, Ring Central, um, started around the same time as us. I think because of their funding path, right? We took no outside funding. They took a lot of outside funding. So their path was very different. Um, and ultimately what that meant was we didn't focus on voice over IP. We didn't focus on physical phones. They did. Both of those lines of business are very low margin, um, high cost lines of business, uh, but they bring in large amounts of uh, revenue per seat. Right. Um, because we didn't have investors, we didn't care about that. We cared about what was profitable and what we could sell well. So we had very high profit profit margins on our business lines um, and stayed away from the others. I think that was one. And then two, we just never really worried about competitors. People popped up here and there, little people, small and then big and, you know, Comcast tried or whoever. Right. To, to sell into this market. And I think what each person found is it's very hard to sell into the true SMB or micro SMB market. Right. Um, there has been much more success selling into the kind of 50 plus person company market, mid to whatever, still small business. Uh, we're talking micro, right? Like our average customer is one and a half employees. So um, that's why we did a lot of B2C marketing. Got it. So they were they were businesses by name only, in a sense. They were, in yeah. large part, they were consumers. Yeah. Um, tell me about the decision not to raise capital, because I think at the end, I read something that you guys were still, you still own something like 90% of the business. Yeah. Yeah, we owned, we owned all of it. Um, uh, between ourselves and the management team, that was 100% of the business, right? Um, what, so what was your thinking there? Because that's pretty unusual for a you know, fast growth technology company. Yeah. So we had, uh, I had raised money in the, in the past at other companies. I didn't love the process. I didn't love the decisions that it made, that it kind of required the company to make at the speed at which we had to go. And, you know, kind of, I just liked the idea of building a company that, um, had this weird idea of made money and like sold a product. Right. And, um, at the time it was very much not kind of the cool thing to do. Um, so we started that way and our goal was always to build an amazing company where we loved being. Right. Like we never had an exit plan, quote unquote, or any of those things. We just wanted to build something that we love doing every day. We were passionate about um, and a place we wanted to be at. Right. You mentioned that you for the plans you charged up front. Yeah. And then you build for usage after the fact. Yeah. How important was that decision? Super important. So that gave us a positive cash cycle where, you know, we were collecting for service not yet provided for the remainder of that month. Right. I mean, and people had anniversary billing. So we were always collecting every day. So that helped with cash. Right. We weren't just collecting on the first of the month or the 30th. Right. Um, and then we got all terms with our vendors. Right. So we would collect on day one and pay a vendor out between day 30 and day 90 for things that we had consumed, right? Um, so that gave us a little bit of leadway in, in the funding there, right? Um, it wasn't easy, but it definitely helped. What else did you do to 
accentuate or in, in, uh, expand on the positive cash flow cycle. So one thing you did was was obviously charge up front and then pay your suppliers between 30 and 90 days. What else did you do to... Because, I mean, growing that quickly uh, can suck up a lot of cash. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it did two things. One, um, we looked for areas that we could charge money up front, right? So if it was a setup fee, you know, so we did all sorts of testing and, and we were all about um, A-B testing everything we did, including our pricing. So we tested all sorts of variants of five, 25, 50, $100 setup fees. It ultimately became 25. And over time, we kind of made it as a promo. You get that for free. Um, that was a way to collect money up front. Um, we did other things like uh, professional voice recordings, right? So again, we could collect $100 up front um, for that recording. We would pay the vendors way less than that. Profit margin was very good. And we'd be paying them you know, way further out. Um, I think the other thing it really did was it made us make decisions like what are our payback periods for marketing, right? Like if we had a ton of capital, we could sustain 12-month-plus payback periods. For us, we cared about kind of three to six-month payback periods, which made us be a little more efficient in our marketing, make different decisions, um, but also spend a ton on optimization, right? So we optimized our, you know, all-in cost per acquisition to well under $100, where we knew that the similar competitors in the space were spending three to $500 in the same channels. Um, and for, from our data, our volume was actually higher at the lower numbers because of our optimization. You mentioned the media that you spent $12 million in radio. Uh, you know, traditional media is hurting right now, particularly print and to some extent radio. What did you do to negotiate on terms? I mean, did, were you getting into, you know, kind of pay for performance agreements with the, the media companies? So I, I wish we were. Uh, $12 million for terrestrial or standard radio is actually kind of the minimum to do national radio. So we were not a big buyer, right? If you look at a big buyer like Geico, they're spending you know, 12 to $20 million a month um, on national campaigns, if not more. Uh, so I mean, that we were kind of at the minimum levels. There are a bunch of breaks you get, but it's still very much old school based on impressions and, you know, in market information and things like that, not uh, actual, you know, results. Got it. So you've got this $30 million business. Uh, you and CMAC think you're going to run it forever. Tell me what changed. What was the trigger that made you want to sell? Yeah. So uh, Citrix uh, approached us um, more than a year before we actually sold. Citrix are the um, guys who make go to meeting. Am I getting that right? That's correct. And they actually sold that whole line of their business, go to meeting, go to my PC, uh, some other stuff and a bunch of, uh, they, a lot of their online stuff, they sold to, um, log me in, um, about a year ago, I believe. Um, so grasshopper went with that. Um, but yeah, so they approached us and said, Hey, we're interested in what you guys are doing. Um, you know, kind of hinted at the idea of selling and, and our answers look like, you know, we have no reason to sell highly profitable. We love doing this. We just, you know, we just invested $12 million in radio. Like we believe in this business and we know that it's growing, um, you know, not interested. Right. Um, and that kind of continued over time and they just kind of kept poking at us. Um, we said, look, come back to us next quarter. Here are our goals for the quarter. So you know what we're doing. Um, and you know, let's see where we end up a quarter from now. Right. Um, the conversation happened again, a quarter later, three months, and we actually blew away all of our numbers and they said, wow, first of all, you're the first company that ever said, come back to us in a quarter and actually met your numbers. So um, congratulations on that. And I think from there, the, the conversations continued. And the only reason we considered even selling at that point was, one, um, Citrix keeps the brand, 
right? So unlike a lot of acquirers, they keep the Grasshopper brand and it's, you know, Grasshopper by Citrix, log me in, you know, or whoever owns it now. But why did um, you care? They, uh, we spent a lot of time and money on that brand. Yeah, but right? you're and, selling and, the company. Why, why did you care if the brand went away? It was, it was, it was like a baby to us, right? And uh, we didn't want to see it thrown away. Um, we could see it go to college, right? Um, and those are two different things. Uh, so I think keeping the brand allowed us to kind of allow that to live on. Um, they were also very open and honest about um, how they were going to treat our, our people, which was very important to us. And um, 100% of our people were retained through the acquisition, which was very important to us. Um, and we're taken care of um, well beyond the acquisition. So um, those, those were important factors that he allowed us to even entertain the conversation. Got it. So I want to come back to some of the, the specifics around the negotiation itself. Before I go there, though, you mentioned you and CMAC were... Um, you know, you were you were having to reinvest a lot of the profits in the business. Yeah. Am I getting it right to say that even though it was a thirty million dollar revenue business, it was hungry for cash, and you weren't you weren't living high on the hog? You know, taking massive dividends. Uh, <laughs> am, am I getting that right, or or maybe correct? Me? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's somewhere in between, right? So, um, you know, we we weren't really hurting for cash; like we could make decisions. Um, I think some of the decisions came to again to payback period, right? We couldn't go past twelve months at that point payback period just because of cash cycles. Um, but look, both CMAC and I, as the founders and entrepreneurs, um, we had plenty of money to invest in a management team that ran day-to-day -day operations, very expensive management team that we built over a five-year period. Um, we also lived very well, right? Like I lived in the house I wanted to live in and I drove a car, right? Like I never needed more than that and I don't have more than that today, right? Like my life didn't change after the sale, but um, you know, we, we weren't living, you know, paycheck to paycheck and eating ramen, right? Um, we had a good life, um, but not an extravagant life. Got it. That's helpful. So uh, Citrus is kind of poking you every quarter and saying, "Hey, would you sell? Would you sell? Would you sell?" At what point do the do the conversations turn a little more serious? Yeah. So where where do you go from kind of dating to the next step, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so I, I think it started to become a little more serious uh, when we said, look, um, if you're interested here, you need to put a number around this um, because if we don't even know that, th there's probably not even much sense in ha continuing the conversation um, or even kind of involving other people on the team. At that point, it was just myself, CMAC, and, and one person on our management team, um, or maybe two people um, a little bit further along. And they, they put a, a real number in front of us. Um, uh, with some attractive terms that also that included very low escrow amounts and um, did not retain me and CMAC over time. And we can talk about why that was important, um, both to them and to us. Um, once we had that number in front of us, we said, okay, look, like we, we know that we could kind of run a process here and try to get competitive bids, um, but it's not what we wanted to do. Um, and we all felt that the number was paying for value in advance of where we were today. Um, so as entrepreneurs, it came down to kind of a de-risking question, right? Like how much do we want to de-risk our lives from a hundred percent of our net worth tied up in a private company that, you know, could blow up and disappear to, um, kind of diversifying that into a more liquid state. Got it. Okay. Thousands of questions <laughs> triggered by that, uh, that comment, but let me start with what is an escrow? So folks are going to be wondering what you mean by escrow. So maybe define it, uh, because some people might confuse it with an earnout or a vendor take back. So just define if you would, what an escrow is. 
Great question. Sometimes I forget, like I, I went into this knowing nothing, right? Um, and, and now after a few sales, I kind of know some of these terms. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a lot of this stuff is very confusing actually. And um, a lot of people that make acquisitions use this stuff on purpose to be confusing, right? For first time entrepreneurs that might not have the right advice and things like that. So um, in, in escrow in this case, um, really accounts for um, known or unknown risks, right? And um, in technology companies, and if you look at comparables, these escrow numbers could be as high as 30 or 40% of the total amount, which means the acquirer holds this back in a third-party escrow, and as risks come up, that could be a lawsuit, that could be something that wasn't paid, or you know some other risk, they take it out of that and you never see that money, right? <laughs> Right. So as an entrepreneur, you sell your business for $100. That sounds great. But if there's a 10% escrow, 10 of those $100 goes into being managed by a third-party lawyer, and you don't get that money until a year goes by and there are no claims against the escrow. Am I kind of right. distilling it down in its basic form? Yeah, 100%. And, and I think the other key point there is that the escrow can last different periods, right? It could be a year. It could be 18 months. Um, it could be five years, right? Um, it depends what the acquirer thinks the risk of the business is and, uh, and then kind of what things get included or not included. So there's a lot of factors there, but it can change an offer number quite a lot. <laughs> you mentioned that going through this a few times now, you've, you've started to figure out how acquirers use confusing language and maybe confusing techniques to to uh, you know, to basically benefit them at the risk of the entrepreneur to to at the disservice of the entrepreneur. Um, what are uh, some other examples beyond escrow? Yeah, so escrow is one of them. Obviously, changing the percentage and the time periods or what's included and not included. Um, another one is earnout. You mentioned that a little bit, right? So that could be both performance based or not. Um, it could require the founder to stay on, right? So if you get a a hundred dollar offer and fifty dollars of that is earnout. Um, that's a high risk, you know, scenario, right? Even if you believe you might um, hit the targets, um, there's then other things that kind of get more into the weeds of a purchase and sale agreement, or you know, the actual offers, um, time periods, lockups, you know, other stuff. What's that, a lockup? Um, not allowing you to talk to other um, potential acquirers for a period of time, so it's kind of an exclusivity deal, um, separate of if the acquisition goes through, right? Like this is prior to acquisition. Um, all of these things either tie your hands or take away opportunity, which in essence changes the, the actual offer amount. Um, there's also, um, payout terms, structures, you know, other pieces like that, that can change the value, right? So if it's an asset purchase and it's a hundred dollars, it's taxed very differently than if it's an earn out over time. So there's a lot of factors that are absent of offer amount. Got it. So they put an offer in front of you. By the way, I should have asked earlier, the $30 million in revenue, what proportion of that would be considered recurring? All of it. I mean, all, all but like, you know, two or 3% that was like, uh, like professional voice recordings and, you know, mini, little stuff like that. Got it. Okay. So you've got $30 million of recurring revenue or thereabouts. Um, so I understand the company sold for $165 million uh, plus $8.6 million in stock was the, the number that Citrix released, which if I'm doing my math right, I was never very good at math, but it's, 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 a, it's north of five times, almost six times top line revenue. Yeah. Yep. It's a big number. Yeah. Uh, again, I mean, this is a strategic acquirer, very different than a venture fund or a you know PE fund. You know, they they had very strategic reasons that they wanted to acquire the business outside of just revenue. And what did you see those as, or what did you, what 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 are those strategic reasons? 
Yeah, so the first was um, they could only, because of their size, acquire businesses that they could get to $100 million within five to 10 years. So that means at minimum, you kind of be at, have to be at $20 million, right? So that gets rid of a lot of small people they can't buy anymore, um, just from a time factor. And, and to be clear, David, that's a Citrix at the time, a Citrix stipulation as opposed to Correct. some other sort of generic rule. Okay, good. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I think that's pretty common as companies grow, right? Um, they, they just say, look, I mean, it's roughly the same amount of time to invest in a, in a million dollar company or a $40 million company. And it's very difficult to get from one to a hundred as it is to get from 40 to a hundred, right? Um, or whatever the, the target is, depending on size of the company. Um, the other was the, the, from a board perspective, um, Citrix had laid out and said, we need to be earlier stage. A lot of our customers are later stage, so more mature companies, larger, more than 10 employee companies where Grasshopper is well under 10. Um, so that was one, two, kind of cross sell. So like, what is the amount of these customers that currently buy or don't buy, you know, the, the, across the products? Uh, and then the other um, being that the board had laid out from their research that they also had a gap in kind of the the types of offerings to SMBs. And, and part of that was voice, right? So they had... Um, teleconferencing a little bit, but most of it was video. Um, they had collaboration tools, they had storage tools. Um, so when they looked at a portfolio, voice was missing. Um, and we fit into that category kind of in all the buckets that they needed. What percentage of the ultimate sale price did they offer in that first number that, that you and CMAC thought, okay, they're serious? So the, the number actually did not change uh, through negotiations down. It went up a little bit um, because we convinced them of some cross-sell and upsell opportunities, um, which we were, we were super happy about and, and definitely helped that we had advisors on our side helping us with those kind of presentations and things like that. But so help me uh, the number itself stayed. Yeah. So help me understand that. And, and, and so you're... You're trying to make the case to them that there are some some cross sell upsell opportunities, and and if I'm Citrix, well, uh, maybe I just say yeah, but that's I mean that's my value to capture that I shouldn't have yeah. to pay you for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it's a game, right? I mean it's kind of a little bit of back and forth. Hey, look how much you could do. Yeah, we know we could do that much, but oh, you could do more, right? So um, I think it's a it's a combination of presentation, but when you look at it from an acquirer's perspective. Um, when you're on the sell side, I think there's a, a few important things to understand, right? The, the value to be captured is only in a few areas. Um, and if you don't highlight those as best as possible and make them look even better than the acquirer might have thought in the past, the number's going to go down, right? So you're kind of competing against a, you know, a, a number of 100 or whatever it is going down. We happen to push it up a little bit, not very much, um, but it didn't go down. And those three areas are one, cost savings, right? So if I have duplication across companies, I can cut costs, right? You don't get a ton of value from this because it's kind of $1 to $1, right? I cut the cost, I get a dollar back, right? Um, the next is like upsell or cross-sell. So um, if I have 100 customers and I can sell them more shit, um, then th there's a lot more value there. Um, or if I can just increase um, the total spend because you know um, it's a different customer base, again, much more value in those areas than cutting. But outside of that, like the acquirer doesn't get much value that you can present. Obviously, you have to play to strategic questions and things like that, but you can't put numbers on those. Take me through again your thinking around not shopping the company. You get this offer from Citrix. It's obviously 
you know, a very fully priced offer, did you think, wow, maybe, you know, maybe we could get seven times top line or eight times top Like, did you go through that sort of thought process? Maybe you know, help us understand that. Yeah, we definitely considered it, right? Um, I mean, it would be silly not to. Um, and, you know, our, our kind of final decision on that was very simple, that we wanted to focus on the business where if this fell through, right, and it, and it is very likely that lots of acquisitions at the stage we were at do fall through, right, early on kind of letter of intent stage, right, um, that we didn't want to lose focus on the business and screw up there. Meaning because we didn't have to exit or we had an exit plan, putting together a full package to shop this to multiple people would have required a lot of distraction from the business. And I felt like that was a much higher risk than the possible gain of what the the, the value might have increased to. Um, maybe we got from six to seven, um, but if the acquisition fell through and we had distracted ourselves from the business for six to eight months, I don't think the return was necessarily there compared to the risk. How did you, I mean, because the downside, not only do you, you maybe leave some money on the table, but again, it sounds like you got full price for the business. So I, I, that doesn't seem like the case. I guess the other risk that a lot of people would say associated with going, you know, proprietary, going without competition so quickly is that the acquirer would would elongate and, and and sort of delay due diligence. How did you yes. hold their feet to the fire and make sure it happened after LOI was signed? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and we did experience a little bit, a little of that. I think it happens in every deal, both you know intentionally or unintentionally. Um, and that that's one of the risks, right? Due diligence drags on, and then deal falls apart. Um, th there is risk without competing parties that that happens. Um, we were pretty strict on our timelines because we were open about not shopping the deal. And we said, look, part of that means that we're going to have shorter timelines on both due diligence and um, purchase and sale and closing and things like that. Um, so we kind of held them to that a little bit. But it, yeah, you're right. We didn't have a, a direct plan other than, look, we're not going to sell it. Um, which was a very viable solution um, for us, which that was our fallback. In my experience, all deals come to a point where uh, one party kind of throws their arms up in the air and said, forget about it. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not doing this deal. And they walk and it, come, and it kind of gets resuscitated. What was that point for you guys where you had to sort of walk away to show you were serious? Yeah, um, I think it probably happened a few times, right? Um, e even in the early stages where, like I said, they came to us and we said, no, we just don't want to sell, right? That was kind of the first, hey, we're not interested, which makes the other party more interested. Um, later on, I think it started to happen as due diligence dragged on a little bit. Um, I got a little frustrated and probably pushed back harder than normal on some things um, because we were spending so much money on radio and uh, stuff like that. I'm like, look guys, like at some point, like we're not there yet, but we're getting close to where I'm just going to say, you know what, we've taken the risk on radio and I'm going to let this play out over the next 12 months. Um, so I, like there were kind of conversations like that, that, that forced the hand a little bit, but they, they were never to the point that we were going to walk away. I don't think. Got it. Got it. How did you and CMAC kind of navigate together? Because you, you both obviously are partners. What was the most contentious point between the two of you? Um, that's a good question. I think that, um, I mean, we were very complimentary to each other where we had different skills and over time we also changed roles a lot. Um, I think 
the the thing that kept us together the most was we always had the same end goal of like building something great that we loved and we were both also super passionate about our core purpose of empowering entrepreneurs to succeed which i think just got us past all of the little things right like should we do this or not do this like we both had the same answers in the end even though we might not have agreed um and because neither of us had an exit plan like i need to sell this by now or you know an investor's bothering me or whatever um, again, I think we were very aligned in those things. And, um, because of that, we've become very close friends and also we've done a hundred percent of our other businesses together as well. Right. So, um, I think that's kind of rare in a lot of cases where, where that happens with partners, but everything after grasshopper we've done together, um, from real estate to technology companies. What was the trophy you guys bought? I mean, I wish I had something interesting to to say to that. Like, um, I mean, I still drive the same car that I had before. Um, like, I mean, everything stayed roughly the same. Um, I'm in the same house I was when I sold the company. Um, but again, like, I, I wasn't living in a tiny apartment. I was living in a nice house where in the neighborhood I wanted. Um, so, I, I mean, I wish I had some. My my girlfriend, um, I have uh, three kids with. Um, she got a minivan. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> that does not count, man. You sell your business for one hundred sixty five million dollars. You got to do better than a minivan. Yeah, <laughs> Next I, time I, we I, talk, you got to do better than a minivan. I wish. <laughs> talk talk to me in seriousness about the emotional impact of selling your company. Twelve hard years. It sounds like. Um, and I'm so to be honest, joking aside, I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised you you didn't buy yourself a trophy because that would have been one way to mark it and make it feel different before the sale and after. How, how have you kind of emotionally uh, handled the uh, the sale the, the period after the sale? Yeah, emotionally, uh, quite honestly, it was very difficult. Um, and I had a lot of advice kind of during the sale process from people like think about this, consider it, like it is not going to be easy. I think it was also doubly hard for us because um, we were not staying on, which meant like like close on May, whatever it was, 16th or something, um, and like you're gone, right? Like email address changes, like everything is gone, right? Um, which is just very abrupt. And after 12 years, like your your identity of like, I am the guy that started Grasshopper and runs Grasshopper, right? Like you're introduced that way. You, you kind of think of yourself that way. Like you're very tied up as part of your identity. And then a day later, it's all gone, right? Uh, so I think that was, that was very difficult. And like, it sounds silly, but like the, the idea of changing email address, like was very hard, right? Cause like just logistically one, but two emotionally, you're like, it is a real thing that happens instantly. And it's like, makes it very real. Um, so I think there was that. Um, I spent a lot of time um, during the sale process and then after thinking about kind of what I wanted to do. And the advice I heard from everyone across the board, there was lots of differences between it, but the kind of theme was don't rush into anything. Um, and I took that seriously because uh, my natural reaction is, okay, done on, on day one, on day two, I'm going to do something else and I'm going to jump right in all, all out, right? Um, so I, I took that seriously and, and tried to step back a little bit, tried a bunch of different things, um, spent some time advising venture funds and early stage companies, finding I don't love doing early stage, kind of refined thoughts around that, played with some of my own things, invested in my personal health, um, did a 200-hour yoga teacher training, um, uh, really changed a lot about my personal health. I'm writing a book about that now. Um, so you know, in that period, I, I would call it roughly 12 months. The, the very beginning was very hard. 
And then the very end was very hard. The middle was easy because I kind of had a plan of don't rush into anything, try lots of things. But the beginning, I wanted to rush in. At the end, I had to start making decisions. <laughs> Tell me about the uh, the idea or, or the fact that you were not uh, held up or held on for the company. Because when most businesses sell, there's a period of transition where the founders stay on and help with the transition. Why was that not the case in, in your case? Yeah, I think there were two really interesting factors here. One, um, the acquirer Citrix had acquired over 35 companies in the past 10 years. Um, so that meant that they had a lot of founders that they had to put into, you know, kind of roles that are highly paid and kind of big title, which not always are effective and whatever. So like they had a lot of people to place in the organization. So they didn't need more of that, right? Um, the second factor was we had a very, very strong management team. Um, CMAC and I had spent a lot of time, money, effort, training, um, building up a management team where ultimately my time in Grasshopper, like working on the business was between five and 15 hours a week, um, if, like in the business, right? Uh, because the management team was running day-to-day -day operations, I had a COO reporting to me, um, and you know that structure worked very well. So the acquirer felt very comfortable that the, the team could continue without us um, because we were providing more vision than day-to-day -day operations, where the business would continue to operate. What advice would you have for an entrepreneur hiring their first chief operating officer, second in command? Yeah, I would say don't don't rush into it and don't hire a COO until you really need one. Right. Uh, we hired a director of operations when we were at about 15 million. Um, that person happened to then grow into the COO position, which doesn't always happen. But if we had started looking for a COO or that type of level person when we were at 15 million, we either would have had someone way too early and they would have gotten bored and it wouldn't have worked out and we would have overpaid Um or like I think hiring beyond 12 months of what you need is very difficult. And we weren't going to double from 15 to 30 million in 12 months. It took longer than that. Um, so the first piece of advice, hire for what you need today. Um, you can always grow that person or get a different person. Teams change over time. Um, and then complement your skills, right? So I, I do, love the idea of operations and operationalizing things. I don't love the details of doing it, right? So I needed someone that loved the details of operationalizing things and creating, you know, POCs and, you know, doing all of those things. So right? what, what's I, a POC? So like a process, right? In essence, like it's just, you know, ma making sure that the processes are documented and followed for everything in the business. Got it. And so did you have just one direct report, in other words, your chief operating officer, and then he or she had everybody else reporting to them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that took a five-year period to get to, right? Um, at the beginning of that five-year period, I had uh, like probably about 20 direct reports because the entire um, engineering team reported to me um, directly. So um, it took time to to fill in those gaps over time. But yes, ultimately, um, I had one direct report and everyone else in layers reported up to the, the COO. You know, it's funny. Like, I get the benefit of looking at your picture on Skype, and, and most people won't have that benefit. But you look like you're 25. I don't know when the picture was taken. But, but, but you're obviously a relatively young guy, and you've been so enormously successful. I think some people listening to this might be tempted to think, wow, like... I, I'm I'm not good enough. Uh, David seems like everything he touches turns to gold. Like, what am I doing wrong? Maybe could you share for folks sort of, um, you know, that 
maybe a failure you had or a mistake you made sure. or, or anything that, that would sort of humanize you a bit more because yeah. right now you're sounding pretty, <laughs> pretty uh, incredible. Yeah. And, and I think um, and also the culture we live in today of kind of this entrepreneurial culture, right? Um, idolizes entrepreneurs at all levels of businesses, um, right. you know, all, all the way up to like Elon Musk. Right. Um, and we, we miss a lot of times the, the, the backstory and the failures and how hard it was. And it took 15 or 20 years to get where they are. And I think that's an important thing. Um, I mean, we've had so many failures, right. Um, inside a grasshopper and out, um, I think the, the larger ones, right, we lost over a million dollars um, thinking that we could build more companies inside of Grasshopper, right? So we're like, oh, I mean, like just you said, you know, we, we, we start a company and it's great and it's easy and it's successful, not easy, but like, you know, we grow quickly, right? Um, well, why can't we do that in a different space? You know, we tried four or five different companies, lost a lot of money and time and focus doing that. Um, even since Grasshopper sold, like, you know, the feeling like, oh, it's, it's easy, right? Like we've attempted four different things. Only one has been relatively successful and not super successful. And it's not even in the technology space, right? So, um, yeah, I think that it it is, you know, we got very lucky with Grasshopper in a lot of ways. One timing wise where the market was, our ability to buy ads cheap, um, things like that. The team we put together, the market was kind of down. So we got people at a cheaper rate than we could have later. Lots of things happened because of it. And we just focused on making money day in and day out. So it took us 12 years, but we did pretty well. Um, but I mean, like, look, even in Grasshopper, uh, we were at days like literally at, almost out of business the next day because we had no cash, right? Like can't meet payroll, need to figure out how to get $150,000, <laughs> right? Um, and you struggle through it. And, and in those days, what, did you put a lien on your house? Did you remortgage something? Like, How did you actually... Get I mean, we begged, we begged, borrowed, I mean, whatever we could possibly do. We pushed vendors back. We, you know, asked for terms. We did, we did anything we possibly could. Right. Um, and we just got through it each time something like that came up and we learned from it and did better. Right. Um, we had a, a, a line of credit with bank of America, um, a sizable one over a million dollars, um, that, that luckily was not personally guaranteed, but the financial crisis hit, right? And Bank of America said, we're calling all of our lines of credit. I mean, that hurt, right? Like, how are we supposed to do that? Um, and those were difficult meetings sitting with, you know, Bank of America and saying, look, we can't pay this and we won't pay this because you, you're calling it outside of the terms. We're well within the terms um, just because you've had a change of, you know, direction and because of the financial markets. Um, and, you know, they had all sorts of threats, but we made it through that. You did indeed and, and came out at the end very well indeed. So, David, is there, is there an ask you have uh, of us? Do, do you, is there somewhere you want to point people to learn more about you, the upcoming book? Like, where can people learn a little bit more about you? Sure. Yeah. So um, I, I have a website that I wish I updated more often. I, I, uh, DavidHauser.com. Um, I, I, I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm not as good at kind of writing on a consistent basis as I wish I was. Um, but the book is coming out in early 2019. It's called Evolve, Optimize Your Body, uh, Your Life, Mind and Body. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll put information on the website about that, including ways to get a free copy and like, um, for me, it's much less about making money from this book. Like if we even break even, that would be a success on, on the book. Um, but I, I want to be able to share the things I learned as an entrepreneur and the framework that I built that kind of empowers anyone to, you know, optimize their life from top to bottom. 
Fantastic. We'll look out for that. Uh, Hauser, by the way, is spelled H-A-U-S-E-R, I believe. Is that correct? DavidHauser.com. Yeah, that's right. We'll look out for the book. David Hauser, thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.